The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Uh, today what we're going to do is uh, first introduce this idea of oscillations, why it might be useful. A fair amount of uh, the day will be spent discussing this paper by Michael Elowitz and Stan Leibler uh, that you read over the last few days, uh, which was the first kind of experimental uh, demonstration that you could take these random components, put them together, and generate an oscillatory gene network. And, uh, and then and finally, it's likely we're going to run out of time around here. Um, but if we, if we have time, we'll talk about uh, other oscillator designs, in particular these relaxation oscillators that uh, are both uh, kind of robust and tunable. If we, um, it's likely we're going to uh, discuss this on, on Tuesday. Okay. <clears throat> All right, so I, I, I want to start by just thinking about uh, other oscillator designs. Uh, but before we get into that, it, it's worth just asking a question, you know, why is it that we might want to design an oscillator? You know, what, what, what do we like about oscillations? Any, uh, well, does anybody like oscillations? And if so, why? Yes? Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yes. All right. So, uh, right, the, the two part answer, right, you can make clocks, and clocks are useful. All right. Okay. So, this is a fine, a fine statement. Uh, Right, so, so oscillators are kind of the basis for timekeeping. And indeed, uh, a, you know, classic, uh, classic ideas of clocks, like a pendulum clock, right? The idea is that you have this thing, it's kind of going back and forth, and each time that it goes, it le allows some winding mechanism to move, and that, that's what the clock is based on, right? And even modern clocks, based on some sort of oscillatory dynamic, it might be at very high frequency, but uh, in any case, the basic idea of oscillations as a mechanism for timekeeping is, uh, is, is why we really care about it. Of course, just from a dynamical systems perspective, we also like oscillations because it's, uh, well, because they're interesting from a dynamical standpoint. And therefore, we'd like to know how we might be able to, to make them. Right. Does anybody, uh, can anybody offer uh, an example of an oscillator in a gene network in real life? Yes. The circadian oscillator, that's right. So, uh, the idea there is that there's a gene network within many uh, organisms that actually keeps track of the daily cycle and indeed is entrained by the daily cycle. Right, so of course, uh, the day-night cycle, that's an oscillator. It's on its own, and it goes without us as well. But it's often useful for organisms to be able to keep track of where in the course of the day uh, it might be. Right? Even in, you know, and, and, and the amount of light that the organism is getting at this particular moment might not be a faithful indicator of how much light there will be available in an hour. Right? Because it could just be that there's a cloud crossing in front of the sun, right? And you don't want, as an organism, to think that it's night and then you shut down all that machinery because after that cloud passes, you want to be able to get going again, right? So it's often useful for an organism to, to know that, uh, you know, kind of where in the morning, night, evening cycle one is. Okay. Uh, and uh, we will not be talking too much about uh, the circadian oscillators in this class, although. I would say that if, to agree with your interest in oscillations, uh, I, I strongly encourage you to look up that literature because it's, really, uh, it's really beautiful. Uh, in particular, in some of, these, uh, some of these oscillators, it's been demonstrated you can get the oscillations uh, in vitro, i.e., outside of the cell. Even in the absence of any gene expression, in some cases, you can still uh, get oscillations of the, just those protein components like in a test tube. And this, was, uh, this was quite a shocking discovery when it was, uh, when it was first published. 
but we want to we want to start out with some some simpler ones, right? And in particular, I, I want to start by thinking about um, just auto uh, auto repression, right? So if you have an auto regulatory loop where uh, some gene is repressing itself, okay. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, does this thing oscillate, right? And indeed, it's reasonable that it might, right? Because we can construct a verbal argument, right? Starts out high. Then it should repress itself, so you get less new X being made, so the concentration falls. Okay, so right, maybe I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you a plot to add to it. All right, concentration of X is a function of time. You can imagine just starting somewhere high, right? That means it's repressing expression, so it's gonna fall. But then, well, once it falls too much, then all of a sudden, okay, well, we're not repressing ourselves anymore, so maybe then we get more expression. More of this X is being made, so it should come back up. All right, and then, oh, okay, now we're back where we started. All right, so this is a totally reasonable, totally reasonable statement. Yes? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't introduce any damping. And here, you know, I've, the amplitude's the same everywhere. Well, I, I'm. Uh, what I, I guess what I'm really trying to say is that just because you can construct a verbal argument that something happens does not mean that a particular equation is going to do that, right? That the part of the value of equations is that they force you to be explicit about all the assumptions that you're making, right? And then, then what you can do is you can ask, well, you know, a given equation is a, man, is a mathematical manif uh, manifestation of the assumptions you're making, right? And then you can ask, does that oscillate? Right? Yes, no. And then you say, okay, well, what would we need to change in order to introduce oscillations, right? And um, I'll just Okay, so this is this is you know this is definitely an oscillation. The question is, you know, should you find this argument that I just gave you convincing? And and, and what I'm I guess about to say is that um, you shouldn't. <laughs> but then we, we we need to be kind of clear about what's going on and why. All right, and uh, and and just because yeah, just because you can make a verbal argument for something doesn't mean that it actually exists. I mean that that's a guide to how you might want to formalize your thinking. Right? And in particular, the the simplest way to think about oscillations or the, the, that might be induced in this situation would be to just say, all right, well, the simplest model that we have for uh, auto, uh, an auto-regulatory loop that's negative is we say, OK, well, there's some, we have some, say, some alpha, 1 plus protein n minus p. Okay? So this is kind of the simplest equation you can write that captures this idea that this protein p is negatively regulating itself, all right, in a cooperative fashion, maybe. Okay. Now, it's already in, uh, a non-dimensionalized version, right? And what you can see is that in this, within this realm, there are only two things that can possibly be changing, right? There's kind of the uh, how, how cooperative that repression is, n, and then the strength of uh, of the expression in the absence of, of repression. Okay. And and as we discussed uh, on Tuesday. Alpha is capturing all these dynamics of the the, uh, the, a, the the actual strength of expression together with the, um, the the lifetime of the protein together with the binding you know the, the binding affinity K right so all those things get wrapped up in this A or alpha rather okay. all right so this is this is indeed the simplest uh, the simplest model that you can write down to describe such a an, a negative autoregulatory loop right now. The question is, now that we've done this, you know, we want to know, all right, does this, does this thing oscillate? Right? And uh, 
even without analyzing this equation, there's something that's very strong which you can say. Right? Is, you know, and so in particular, we can ask, is it possible for this thing to oscillate? All right. All right, possible. All right, oscillations, we'll say oscillations possible. Right? And, I, and this I'm referring to mathematically possible. Right? So I'm not, you know, maybe this thing does oscillate, maybe it doesn't. But in particular, even without analyzing it, is there, is there anything that you can say without analyzing it? All right? We're just going to say, is it possible yes or no? You're gonna, if, you say, if you say no, you have to be prepared to give an argument for why this thing can, is not allowed to oscillate. I'm talking about this equation. All right, do, you, do you understand the question that I'm trying to ask? We haven't analyzed this thing yet, but the question is, can, even before analyzing it, can we say anything about whether it's kind of mathematically allowed to oscillate? Okay. I'll give you 10 seconds to think about it, and then. All right, and if you say no, you get, you get to tell me why. All right, ready? Uh, three, two, one. All right, so we, you know, we got a smattering of things. All right, can some, you know, so this, this is actually, I think this is sort of not obvious a priori, um, but it turns out that it's not actually, it's just mathematically impossible for this thing to oscillate. And can somebody say why, why that might be? Perfect, okay. So for a given value of p, there's only some value of p dot that you can have, right? And in particular, so p here is like concentration of x. All right, so I'm going to pick some value randomly here of p. And what you're pointing out is, all right, this is a differential equation in which if you give me or I give you the p, you can give me p dot. Right? And there's a single value p dot for each p. Right? And in this sort of oscillatory scheme, is that statement true? No. Right? What you can see is that over here, so this is x slash you know, p. Concentration of x. Or, you know, we're, we're using p here because we're about to start talking about mRNA, so I, I want to keep the notation consistent. All right. What you see is that the derivative here is negative, the derivative here is positive, negative, positive. Right. So any uh, any oscillation that you're going to be able to imagine is going to have multi-value, multiple values for the derivative as a function of um, of that value, just because you have to come back and forth, you have to cross that point multiple times. So what this is saying is that since this is a differential equation, and it's actually important that it's a differential equation rather than a difference equation where you have discrete values, but given that this is a differential equation where time is taking little, little, little steps, all right, and you have a single variable, it just can't oscillate. All right. So for example, if you're talking about the oscillations of a harmonic oscillator, the important thing there is that you have both the position and the velocity. So you have these two dynamical variables that are interacting in some way, right? Because you have, in case, say, momentum in that case, right? That allows for that os the oscillations in in the case of uh, a mass on a spring, for example. Okay. Question. Right. So what we're saying is that right, p simply cannot oscillate in this in this situation where we have a differential equation describing p with uh, just, if we just have p dot as a function of p, and we don't have like a second order of p double dot, for example, right? So if it's just 
linear differential, or sorry, if it's just, uh, if we just have a single derivative with respect to time and some function of p over here, what that means is that if, uh, if p is specified, then p dot is specified. Right? And that means that, and that's inconsistent with any sort of oscillation, right? because any oscillation is going to require that at this given value of p, this concentration of p, in this case, the concentration is going down. Here, it's going up. Right? So here, this is, from that standpoint, a multi-valued multi function. Um, any other questions about this statement? Because right. it doesn't, even if I just written down some other function of p over here, that the statement would still be true. Okay. All right. So that's, um, right, and it, it's valuable to be able to have some intuition about you know what are the essential ingredients to get this sort of uh, oscillation, right? So in the and for simple harmonic motion, right there we have this second derivative, first derivative, you know, and that, that's what allows. Uh, that's what allows oscillations there, All right? But so so okay. So we can we can maybe write down a more complicated model of uh, negative autoregulation, and then and then try to ask the same thing: uh, might this new model oscillate? Okay. All right. And this this looks a little bit more complicated, but we just have to be a little bit careful. All right. So okay. So this is again negative autoregulation. But what we're going to do is we're going to explicitly think about the, the concentration of the mRNA. Okay. Right. And that's just because when, when a gene is initially trans, uh, transcribed, it first makes mRNA, and then the mRNA is translated into protein. Right? So, uh, so what, we're, what we can do is we can write down something that looks like this. All right. m dot derivative of m respect to time is going to be All right, so M is, uh, this is the concentration of mRNA, and P is the concentration of protein, OK? Right. Um, right, what you can see is that the protein is now repressing expression of the mRNA. Right? mRNA is being degraded. But then down here, this is a little bit funny. But what you can see is that if you have more mRNA, then that's going to lead to the production of protein. Yet we also have a degradation term for the protein. Okay. Yes? Good question. Okay, you're you're wondering why why we've pulled out this beta. You know, in particular, it it almost right. Okay, perfect. Okay, yeah. This this is very important, and actually, this gets in once again to this question of the not you know these 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 non-dimensional versions of the equations. Um, mathematically simple, biologically very complicated. Well, first of all, what is it that we've used as our unit of time in this in these equation in these equations? Right, so it's based on the, the lifetime of, um, of the mRNA, right? Because we can see that there's nothing sitting in front of this m. And if we want to then allow for a difference in the lifetime of mRNA and protein, then we have to ha introduce some other thing, which we're calling beta, right? And so beta is that, that's the ratio of, well, which one's more stable, mRNA or protein often, typically? 
proteins are typically more stable. Right? So does that mean that beta should be larger or smaller than 1? OK, I'm going to let you guys think about this just to make sure we're all OK. So um, the question is, is beta, is it A greater than 1, typically much greater, or is it B much less than 1, given what we just said? All right, you think about it for 10 seconds and then. Um, Are you ready? All right. Three, two, one. All right, so the, most people are saying B. All right, so indeed, so beta should be much less than 1. All right, and that's because beta is the ratio of the lifetime. All right, so and you can see if beta gets larger, that increases the uh, degradation rate of the protein. Right? And what do I want to say? Right, so, 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 so beta is, is, is the ratio of the lifetime of the mRNA to the lifetime of the protein. Yes? So again, why we have to Yeah, beta no, I understand. Yeah, no, I understand. I'm getting to your question. It's just first we have to, first we have to make sense of this. And then, yeah, because the next thing is actually even weirder and caught more. Yeah. Um, but I just want to be clear that beta is um, here. Is, it's defined as the, the lifetime of mRNA over the lifetime of the protein. Um, what's interesting is actually this is um, there's a there's a typo or mistake in um, in the Elowitz paper actually. So if you look at Figure One B or so, or yeah, so Figure One B actually it says that beta is the protein lifetime divided by the mRNA lifetime. So you can correct that if you like. All right. Uh, so be, yeah, beta is at the lifetime of the mRNA divided by the lifetime of the protein. Uh, all right, okay, so, so I think that we understand why that term is there. But the, the, the weird thing is that we're able, we're doing P minus M over here, right? And, 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 and it feels somehow that that, that can't be possible, that, you, that, you know, that it shouldn't be beta times M over here, right? Because that, that it feels like it's underdetermined, right? Okay, so does somebody, so I mean, it's possible I just, you know, I just screwed up. Right, but uh, can some you know? Does anybody want to defend my um, my my equation here? How how might it be possible that it that this makes any sense? That you can just have the one beta here that you pull out and both it's just p minus m over here. I think it's an assumption of the, of the model where they choose the lifetime of the protein and the well, mRNA to be No, because actually we're, we're we have this term beta, which is the lifetime of mRNA divided by lifetime of protein. So we haven't assumed anything about this. Beta could be in principle, larger than one, smaller. Actually, so I mean, it's true that given typical facts about life in the cell, it's true that you expect beta to be much less than one. But we haven't made any assumption. You know, beta is just there; it can be anything, right? So uh, yeah, it's possible we've made some other assumption. But uh, but what's going on? Yes. Yes, that's right. Because remember, okay, you can only choose one unit for time. Okay, and we've already chosen that to get this to be just minus m here, right? But you get to choose what's the unit of concentration for both mRNA and for protein. Okay, can somebody remind us what the unit of concentration is for protein? The dissociation constant of the protein. Right. To the That's right. So it's this dissociation constant, and, you know, and more generally, it's this—it's the protein concentration which you get 
half maximal repression. Right? Um, and depending on the detailed models, it could be more complicated. But, but in this kind of phenomenological realm, yeah, if, you, if p is equal to 1, you get half repression. That, you know, that's our definition for what p equal to 1 means. Right? So we've rescaled out that k. Right? And so, so, so what we've really done is that there's some unit for the concentration of mRNA that we were, we were free to choose. And it was chosen so that you could just say p minus m. Right? But what that means is that um, you know, it requires you know, a genius to figure out what, the, what m equal to 1 means. Right? Um, well, OK, it's not, it doesn't quite require a genius. But, but what do you guys think it's going to depend on? Yes. Yes, right. So beta is going to appear in there. So I'll, t I'll give you a hint. There are three things that determine it. So translation, yes. So the translation efficiency. So each mRNA, uh, you know, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to some rate of protein synthesis. So yeah, the translation rate or efficiency is going to enter. There aren't that many other things it could be, but yeah, I mean, it, this, this is tricky. Uh, and it's OK if you can't just figure it out here, because this, I think, is, is pretty subtle. Uh, right, it turns out that it also depends on that k parameter. Right, because there's some sense that m equal to 1, what it's, what it's saying is that that's the amount of mRNA that you need so that if the protein concentration were 1, you would not get any change in the protein concentration. Right? And it's given that it depend that now I've, I had to invoke p in there, and p is scaled by k, so then k also ends up being relevant for this mRNA. Right? So you can, if you'd like, go ahead and, and start with the original reasonable set of equations and then, and then get back to this. Right? But I think, once again, this just highlights that um, these, these non-dimensional versions of the equations are great, but um, but it's just, but you have to be careful, right? That you don't know what means what. All right. Are there any questions about what we've said so far? Okay. Now what we've done is we've um, we have now a protein concentration, we have mRNA concentration, and what I want to ask for now is for these sets of equations, is it maybe mathematically possible that they could maybe oscillate? Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, um, we're going to find that the answer is that these actually don't oscillate, but um, but you have to actually do the calculation if you if you want to determine that. You can't just say that it's it's impossible based on the same argument here, and that's because uh, if you if you think about this in the case of there's some mRNA concentration, some protein concentration, right? What we want to know is does do things oscillate in this space? And the answer and, and they could, right? I mean, I'm, I can certainly draw. <laughs> a curve. All right. It ends up not being true for these particular sets of equations, but you, you can't uh, a priori kind of dismiss the possibility. Yes? That's like the differential equation, but if you write down this classic model, does that Okay, right. This is a this is a very good question. All right, so right, so this is the differential equation uh, format of this in that uh, we're not we're assuming that there's no there are no stochastic fluctuations and indeed there is um, a large area of excitement recently is uh, trying to understand uh, cases in which you can have uh, so-called noise-induced oscillations. Right? So you can have cases that the deterministic equations do not oscillate, but the, um, 
but the, the, if, you, if you do the full stochastic treatment, then that could oscillate, in particular the, so if you do a master equation type formalism. Uh, and actually, I don't know for this particular equations. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know for this one. Uh, but in, um, towards the end of the semester, we will be talking about explicit models in which uh, predator-prey systems, in which the, the differential equation format doesn't oscillate, but then if you do the master equation stochastic treatment, then it does oscillate. So um, yeah, so we will be talking about this in other contexts, but I don't know the answer for this model. Um, okay. All right, so uh, all right, let, let's go ahead and, and, and maybe try to analyze this a little bit. Uh, and th this is useful to do uh, partly because it's going to be, um, some of the calculations are going to be very similar to what we're about to do next, which is uh, look at uh, stability analysis of, um, of a repressilator kind of system. All right. Uh, I should first. All right. So this this thing here uh, we, is is some function f of m and p, and this guy here is indeed again some other function g of m and p, and we're going to be taking derivatives of these functions um, around um, around the fixed point. Okay. Um, all right, and maybe I will also say, all right, there's going to be some stable point, And we should just calculate what it is. I'm sorry I'm making this go up and down. You know, you don't get dizzy. Um, all right, OK, so first of all, let's just, um, it's always good to know whether there are fixed points in any sort of equations that you ever look at. Um, so let's go ahead and, and see that. First of all, is, is um, is m equal to 0, p equal to 0, is that a, is that a fixed point of the system? No, right? So uh, if m and p are 0, then this is a fixed point. But that one's not, because we get, we get expression of the mRNA in the absence of the protein, right? So the origin is not a fixed point. Right? Um, now, to figure out the fixed points, we just set these things equal to 0, right? So um, if, we, if m dot is equal to 0, we have 0. That's alpha 1 plus p to the n minus m. Uh, again, 0 is minus. Okay. All right, so what you can see is that um, at equilibrium, we have a condition here where um, m is equal to p. Right? So from this, we get m, um, m equilibrium is equal to p equilibrium. Right? Uh, and so m equilibrium over here, it has to be equal to p equilibrium, we just said. And that's equal to this guy here. It's alpha 1 plus p equilibrium to the n. Right? Indeed, the, uh, the condition for this equilibrium is then something that looks like this. All right. Now this is um, maybe not so intuitive. But alpha is this non-dimensional version of the strength of expression, right? And what this is saying is that um, broadly, I mean, this is some, uh, you know, it's not obvious how to, how, to, how to solve this explicitly. But as the strength of expression goes up, the equilibrium here, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying equilibrium, and that's maybe a little bit dangerous. We might even want to just call it, so, it's, it's, it's the it's a fixed point concentration, so it doesn't have to be stable. So if, you know, if, we want to be a little, if we don't want to bias our thinking, 
different people argue about whether equilibrium should be a stable or require a stable. We could just call it some P naught. If that, if that makes you less likely to, think, you know, to bias our, our thinking in terms of whether this, thing, this concentration should be a stable or unstable fixed point. Okay? But for example, if, if we have that in, this, in these units, if alpha is you know, around 10, you know, n might be 2, then you know, this thing gives us something. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a kind of a, you know, in the range of a, of a couple, uh, you know, well, 2, 3. Um, you can calculate what, what it should be. right? Two, four, maybe even exactly two. Does that? Yeah. All right. So yes. So for example, yeah. I'm just giving an example. If alpha were ten, then this equilibrium concentration or this this fixed point concentration would be two. If 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 n were equal to two, to give you kind of some sense of the numbers, right? And this this is this is two in units of that uh, that binding affinity k, right? Okay. Now the question is, well, what does this mean? I mean, why did we do this? Why do we care at all about the properties of that fixed point? Well. Uh, remember, okay, so this this might be some at some p naught, and this is again m naught is equal to p naught in these units, uh, right? So there there's some fixed point somewhere in the middle there, right? Now it turns out that the stability of that fixed point is very important in determining whether there are oscillations or not. Okay, now the question of uh, the generality or you know what can you say that's universally true about when you get oscillations and when you don't? This is, uh, in general, a very hard mathematical problem, particularly in higher numbers of dimensions. But for two dimensions, there is a very nice statement that you can make based on the uh, Poincaré-Bendixson criterion. All right, I cannot remember how to spell that, so I'm just going to—I'm probably mispronouncing it as well. But you know, all right. So, uh, so Poincaré and Bendixson, what they showed is that if in two dimensions you can draw some box here such that all of the trajectories are kind of coming in. Okay. And indeed, this, in this case, they, they do come in, because you know, the trajectories aren't going to cross 0. Uh, if, you have, uh, if you have some mRNA, then you're going to start making protein. Right? Uh, if you have just protein, no mRNA, you're going to start making some mRNA. And we know that trajectories have to come in from out here, because if, if the concentration of mRNA and the concentration of protein are very large, then eventually the degradation is going to kind of start pulling things in. So if you come out far enough, eventually you're going to get trajectories coming in. All right, so now we have there's some domain where all the trajectories are going to come in. Now you can imagine that somehow the stability of this thing is very important. Because in two dimensions here, when you have a differential equation, trajectories cannot cross each other. Okay. So I'm not allowed in any sort of space like this to, to do something that looks like this. Right? Because this would require that at some concentration of m and p, I have different values for m dot and p dot. Okay, so it's similar to this argument that we made for one dimension, but it's just generalized to two dimensions. Okay? So we're not allowed to cross trajectories in, you know, in, well, if you have a differential equation in any dimensions, that's true. But the thing is that, that this constraint is, very, is a very strong constraint in two dimensions, whereas in three dimensions, everything kind of goes out the window. right? Because you, in th three dimensions, you have another axis here. and then. These lines can do all sorts of crazy things. And that's actually basically why you need three dimensions in order to get chaos in these uh, in differential equations. Right? Because, uh, because this thing about the absence of crossing is just such a strong constraint in two dimensions. Okay. Are there questions about what I'm saying right now? I'm a little bit worried that I'm. Okay. All right, so the tra trajectories are not allowed to cross. Right? What that, and that, that's really saying something very strong, OK? Because we know that. Here, trajectories are going to kind of come, 
come out of the axis and mRNA, OK, we don't know which direction they're going to come. Right? Well, let's, let's figure out if it were to oscillate, would, it, would, things be, would the trajectories be going clockwise or counterclockwise? And actually, there's going to be some sense of the trajectories even in, even in the absence of oscillations. But broadly, is, is there kind of a uh, counterclockwise or clockwise kind of motion to the trajectories? Counterclockwise, right? And that's because mRNA leads to protein. Right? Right, so things are going to be kind of going like this. The question is, um, is it going to oscillate? And that, in two dimensions, actually, Poincaré and Dixon, what they say is that actually, if there's just this stable fixed point here, or sorry, if there's just one fixed point here, then um, the question of whether it oscillates is the same as the question of whether this is, fixed, is, is stable. Right? So if, that, um, if, that's, if it's stable, then, uh, then there's no oscillations. Where if it's unstable, then there are. All right, well, we'll just say no oscillations and oscillations. Okay. And that's because if it's a stable point and all the trajectories are coming in, then it just looks like this. Right? So it spirals maybe into a state of coexistence. Or sorry, to, well, stable to the, it spirals to this point of M and P. Whereas if it's unstable, then those trajectories are somehow being pushed out. Then if it's unstable, then the trajectories are coming out of that fixed point, in which case then that, that's actually precisely the situation in which you get limit cycle oscillations. Right? So if, if the fixed point were unstable, it looks like this. Because right, we have some box. So the trajectories are all kind of coming in somehow in here. But if we have one fixed point here and the trajectories are coming out, that means we have something that looks like this. It kind of comes out. Right? And given that these trajectories can't cross, the question is, well, what can happen in between? And the answer is that it has to be um, basically, you have to basically get a limit cycle oscillation. There, there are these strange situations where you can get um, you can get a path that is an oscillation that's kind of stable from one direction and unstable from another. Uh, we're not going to worry about that here. But broadly, if, if this thing is coming out, then you end up uh, in both directions converging to a stable limit cycle oscillation. Okay. Uh, so if it's unstable fixed point, then this is the exact situation in which you get, uh, you get a limit cycle oscillation. All right, so that means that what we really want to do, if we want to ask, let's okay, try to back up again. All right, we have this, this pair of differential equations. We want to know, will this negative auto-regulatory loop, will this thing oscillate? Right? Now, what I'm telling you is that that question for two dimensions is analogous to the question of figuring out whether this fixed point, that I, whether this fixed point is stable or not. Okay, if it's stable, then we don't get oscillations. If it's unstable, then we do. Any questions about this? All right. So let's, uh, let's see what it is. All right. So on, on Tuesday, what we did is we talked about stability analysis for linear systems. All right. We got what I hope is some intuition about that. Uh, and uh, of course, what we need to do here is, uh, is try to understand how to apply linear stability analysis to this nonlinear pair of differential equations. Um, and to do that, uh, what, what we need to do is we need to kind of linearize around, around that fixed point. All right, so what we have is we have these two functions, um, f and g. All right, and what we want to know is around that fixed point. So we can define some m tilde, which is m minus this 
m naught, and some p tilde, which is p minus p naught. Okay. All right, so when m tilde and p tilde are around 0, that's telling us that we're, around, we're close to that, uh, to that fixed point. And we want to know uh, if we uh, just go a little bit away from the fixed point, do we, kind of, do we get pushed away or do we come back to where we started? Okay. Well, we know that m tilde dot, which is actually equal to m dot as well, because m naught and p naught are the same, p tilde dot. All right, we can linearize by taking derivatives around, uh, around the fixed points. Okay. All right, and in particular, what we want to do is we want to take the derivative of f with respect to m evaluated at the fixed point. Right. That derivative is indeed just minus 1. Okay. Right, so in general, in, the, in these situations, what we have is we have derivatives m, m dot p dot. And we, we have partial of this first function f with respect to m partial of g with respect, or no, so this is still f with respect to, um, with respect to p. And down here is derivative of g with respect to m, derivative of g with respect to p. And this is all evaluated around the fixed point m naught, p naught. Okay. Okay. So we want to take these derivatives and, and evaluate at the fixed point. Right, and if we do that, we, we get a minus 1 here, derivative m with respect to m, times m tilde. This other guy, when you take the derivative, you end up getting a, you, you get a minus sign. We're taking the derivative of this with respect to p. So we get a minus sign because this is in the denominator. And then we have to take the derivative inside. So we get n alpha p naught to the n minus 1. And down here, we get a 1 plus p naught squared. All right, so that we took the derivative of this term with respect to p, and we evaluated at the fixed point p naught. Right? Did, did I do that right? Ah, but we still have to add a p tilde. Because right, this is saying how sensitive is the function to changes in where you are times how far you've gone away from the fixed point. Right? And then uh, again, over here, we take the derivatives down below. So, Derivative of g with respect to m, that gives us a beta, m tilde. And then we have a minus beta, p tilde. Okay. All right, so this is, this is just uh, an example of linearizing those equations around, around that fixed point. All right, and so we, we can. Ultimately, what we care about is really this, this, uh, this matrix that's specifying uh, deviations around the equilibrium, right? So it's, it's useful to just write it in matrix format because we get rid of some of the m's and p's. Indeed, so this matrix that we often either call A or the Jacobian, depending on. Right, so we, what we have is. A minus one, uh, and this thing. What we're going to do? We're going to call this thing uh, this this thing x because it's going to it's going to pop up a lot. Is is this minus n alpha p naught? 
right, so it's an x, beta, and minus beta. Right. And then we have our simple rules for determining whether this thing is going to be stable or not. Right. It depends on the trace, and it depends on the determinant. Right. So the trace should be negative. And is this trace negative? Yes, yes. Because beta, does anybody remember what beta was again? Ratio of lifetimes. Lifetimes are positive, so beta is positive. All right, so the trace of A. Um, it is equal to minus 1 minus beta. This is indeed less than 0. Right, so this is consistent for stability. Does it prove that it's stable? No. Uh, but we also need to know about the determinant of A, right, which is going to be beta, this times this, minus this times this. So that's um, minus, and this is a beta times what x was, so this gives us, you know, we can write this all down just so that it's clear that it has to be positive. Okay. All right, so beta is positive, 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 positive. Everything's positive. Okay. So this thing has to be, uh, this thing has to be greater than zero. Okay. So what does this mean about the stability of that fixed point? Stable, right? Fixed point stable. And what does that mean about oscillations? It means there are no oscillations. Fixed point stable. Therefore, no oscillations. All right, so what this is saying is that the original kind of simple equation that we wrote down for negative autoregulation, that thing was not allowed to oscillate kind of mathematically. That, but that doesn't mean that if you explicitly model the mRNA, it, doesn't, it could go either way. But still, that's insufficient to generate oscillations. Okay. However, maybe if you included more steps, maybe it would oscillate. Yeah, question? So just to double check here, did you say no oscillations mean stable oscillations? Because that's right. Okay, so sorry. When I, say, when I mean no oscillations, what I mean are indeed no limit cycle oscillations. No. So this is like a dampen? Yeah. OK, well, we. Yeah, so we actually have not, um, we have not solved exactly what, what it looks like. And it may not, I, I've drawn this as a pretty oscillatory thing, but it might just look like this, depending on the parameters and so forth. Yeah. And indeed, we haven't even proven that this thing has uh, complex eigenvalues. So, uh, but certainly, there are no limit cycle oscillations. And, though, and I'd say it's really limit cycle oscillations that you know, people find most, most exciting. Uh, because that, that just means that, because uh, limit cycle oscillations, uh, they have a characteristic amplitude, right? So it doesn't matter where you start. The oscillations go to some amplitude. And they have a characteristic period, again, independent of, uh, of your starting condition. So those, those things are, um, so a limit cycle oscillation is, has a feeling similar to like a stable fixed point in the sense that it doesn't matter where you start, you always end up there. You know, and so they're the ones that are really like what you would call you know, mathematically nice oscillations. And incidentally, when I say this, I, I'm, I'm in particular comparing them to neutrally stable orbits. Right, so there are cases in which, uh, in, which in two variables, you, you have a fixed point here. And at least in the, in the case of, of, of linear stability, if, the re if you have purely imaginary eigenvalues, what that means is that 
you're, you have orbits that, that go around your, your fixed point. Okay? Um, and we'll, we'll see some cases that look like this later on. Uh, and, and this is indeed the nature of the oscillations in uh, the Lotka-Volterra model for predator-prey oscillations. They're not actually limit cycle oscillations. They're of this kind that is, are considered uh, less interesting because they're, they're less um, robust. Small changes in the model can cause these things to either, uh, either go away to turn into uh, this kind of stable spiral or to turn into limit cycle oscillations. Right? So we'll, we'll talk about this more uh, in a couple months. These are neutrally stable orbits. Okay, so I, but I, what I wanted to what I wanted to highlight though is that just because the original simple protein-only model didn't oscillate, and just and this protein mRNA together doesn't oscillate, does not mean that it's impossible to get oscillations using negative autoregulation, um, either experimentally or uh, or computationally. Right? And uh, the question is, what what might you need to do to get oscillations? Okay, all right. So, okay, so the, in the paper they talk about various things, including things such as leakage. It turns out that leakage in expression only uh, inhibits oscillations, though. All right, so there, in some sense, they um, the leakage is. If you're trying to get oscillations, leakage is a problem, actually. All right, and that's why they 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 use this especially tight. Well, we'll we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. They they use a especially tight version of these promoters to to have low rates of, of leakage in the synthesis. All right, but what might you need in order to get oscillations of a in negative autoregulation? Did you have Delay, yes, indeed. And that's something that they mention in, in uh, the Elowitz paper, is that you know, if you add explicit delay, right? So for example, if instead of having the repression depend on, OK, I already erased everything. But instead of having you know, the protein, for example, being a function of the mRNA now, maybe if you said, oh, it's a function of the mRNA you know, five minutes ago. And that's just because maybe, oh, it takes time to make the protein, or it takes time for this or that. You can introduce an explicit delay like that. Or you could even instead have a model where you just have more steps. Okay? So what you do is you say, oh, well, yeah, sure. What happens is that first the mRNA is made, but then after the mRNA is made, yeah, then you have to make the, um, the peptide chain, but then, the, you know, then that, that, that peptide chain has to fold, and then maybe those proteins have to multimerize. Um, indeed, if you include, if you write down such a model, then for some reasonable parameters, you can get oscillations just with negative autoregulation. And indeed, I would say that over the last 10 years, probably the um, the reigning king of oscillations in uh, the field of, of systems synthetic biology is Jeff Hasty at San Diego, and he's written a whole train of beautiful papers uh, exploring uh, how you can uh, how you can make these oscillators in. Uh, in simple gene networks. So he's been focusing uh, in E. coli. There's also been great work in kind of higher organisms in this regard. But um, let's say uh, Hasty's work kind of stands out in terms of really being able to take these models and then implement them in, in cells and kind of going back and forth. And he's shown that, uh, that you can generate oscillations uh, just using negative autoregulation if you have significant, you know, enough delays in that negative uh, feedback loop. Okay. Uh, all right, are there any questions about kind of where we are right now 
right? I know that we're supposed to be talking about the repress later, but uh, we first have to un you know, make sure we understand the negative autoregulation. All right. So um, okay. So this is I'd say I mean everything that we've said right so far in terms of the models is just you know this was all known, right? Uh, but what Michael wanted to do is ask whether he could really construct an oscillator, right? And uh, and he did this using these three uh, mutual repressors. Uh, X, we'll say X, Y, and Z just for, for now. Right. X represses Y, represses Z, represses X. And, uh, and he has a nice model of, of, this, of this system that helped him guide the design of his circuits. Right? So experiments, as most of us who have done them know, you know experiments are hard. Okay, so if you can, uh, if you can do you know, a week of thinking before you do a year of experimental biology, then you should, you know, you should do that, right? And what, what, were the, um, what were the lessons that he, he learned from the modeling that kind of guided his construction of, um, of this circuit? Yeah? Right, so you want to have similar lifetime of the mRNA and the protein, right? And this is somehow similar to this idea that you need more delay elements because if you have very different lifetimes, then the, the more rapid process somehow doesn't count. Okay? It's very hard to increase the lifetime of the mRNA that much in, in bacteria. So instead, what he did is he, he decreased the lifetime of, uh, of the proteins, of the transcription factors, in this case, x, y, and z. Okay? Um, can someone else say, yeah, and you, you mentioned what the other thing that he maybe did? That's right. So, so he, he and nobody. He, I guess he, he knew that leakage was going to be a problem. I.e., that you want tight repression, and so he he had um, he he made he used these synthetic promoters that both had high level of expression when on, but then very low level of expression when being repressed. Right. Um, okay. And and all right. So he he. Um, he made this thing, and in particular, he, uh, he looked at it in a test tube. Right? He was able to use, in this case, IPDG to synchronize them. And he looked at the fluorescence in the test tube. Uh, so the fluorescence is reporting on, um, on one of the proteins. You know, we can call it x if we'd like. Right? But fluorescence is kind of telling us about the state. And, what, and if it starts out, say here, he saw kind of a single cycle damped oscillations, maybe. So the question is, um, why, why did this happen? You know, so why is it that in the test tube, he didn't see something that looked very nice? Oscillations. Noise. noise. And in particular, what, what, what kind of noise, or what's going on? Desynchronization, exactly. Right, so the idea is that even if you start out with them all synchronized, you, know, you give an IPDG pulse, and they're synchronized in some, in some way, right, it may be that at the beginning, all of them are oscillating in phase with each other. But over time, random noise, you know, phase drift in the different oscillators leads to some of, them, uh, some of them come down and come back up, and then others are slower. You start averaging all these things together, and it leads to, to, damped, uh, to damped oscillations within uh, within at the, at the test tube level, within the bulk. Okay. Yes. So what do you mean from the test tube? Like you just take all these components and you put it 
Right, so sorry, when I, when I say test tube, what I mean is that you have um, all the cells. So they still are intact cells, but, um, but it's just many cells. Right? So then the signal that you get, the fluorescence, is some average over all, you know, or sum over all the fluorescence you get from all those cells. Okay. Okay. Right. So there's a sense that this is really what you expect, given the fact that they're going to desynchronize. Of course, the better the oscillator, in the sense that the better, the lower the phase drift, then you, maybe you can see more, uh, you know, a slower rate of, of this kind of desynchronization. But, uh, but this is really what you, what you kind of expect. All right? So that's what maybe led him to go and look, do, look at the single cell level, right? where he put down single cells on this agar pad and just imaged as, that cell as the cells oscillated and divided. Now, there, there are a few features that are you know, important to note from the data. Right? The first is that they do oscillate. Okay? That's, um, you know, um, that's, that's a big deal, right? because this, this was indeed the, the uh, first demonstration of being able to put these random components together like that and generate an oscillation. But they didn't oscillate very well. Right? So he's, they said, oh, maybe 40% of the cells oscillated. Right? I have no idea of what the rest of the cells were doing. Right? But, um, but also, even the cells that were oscillating, there was a fair amount of noise to the oscillation. Okay. And uh, uh, the latter half of this paper has a fair amount of discussion of why that might be. And, uh, and they allude to the, these recent, the ideas that had been kind of bouncing around that, uh, in the, from the theoretical computational side, uh, demonstrating that it may be that the low numbers of proteins, genes involved here, could in introduce stochastic uh, or noise kind of into the system, and thus lead to this kind of phase drift that was observed experimentally. And I think that this basic observation that Michael had that, there was, uh, that he got oscillations, but they were noisy, that is part of what led him to start thinking more and more about uh, the role of noise in, in gene networks and so forth, and uh, led later to another uh, hugely influential paper uh, that um, is not going to be a required reading in this class, but is listed under the you know, op you know, optional reading, if, if, you're, if you're interested. But uh, we'll really get into the, this question of noise more uh, a couple weeks from now. Were there any other questions about the, the experimental side of this paper before? Um, I wanted to, to analyze uh, maybe a little bit of a simple model of the repressor, but OK. All right, so the model that they used to help them design this experiment involved all three proteins, all three mRNAs. Right? And what that means is that when you go and you do a model, you're going to end up with a 6 by 6 matrix. And that um, I don't have boards that are big enough, All right, So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to um, uh, analyze just the, the kind of the protein-only version model of the repressor. So what we have here is three proteins, P1, 2, 3, P1, dot. And we have uh, all right, degradation of this protein. And we're going to analyze the symmetric version, just like uh, what Michael did. Right? So that means that we're assuming that all the proteins are, um, are equivalent. I'm sure you know, that's not true, because these are um, they're different promoters, different everything. But you know, this gives us the intuition. All right, so it's minus P1. And, and this uh, protein 1 is, is repressed by uh, protein 3. Right. 
protein 2 is going to be repressed by protein 1. All right, and then uh, protein 3 is going to be repressed by protein 2. So this is, this is what you would call the protein-only model of the repressed layer. Right now, just as before, the fixed points are when the, um, the, PI, all for the PI dots are equal to 0. And we get the, uh, the, the, same, uh, the same equation that we basically had before, where this, uh, the equilibria or the fixed point, again, is going to be given by something that looks like this. Right, so it's the same. It's the same require, requirement that we had uh, that we had before. Now uh, the question is, uh, how can um, how can we get at the stability of that internal fixed point? It's it's worth mentioning here that now we have three proteins. So this is uh, the trajectories are in in this three dimensional space. So from a mathematical standpoint, uh, determining the stability of that internal fixed point is actually not sufficient to tell you that there has to be oscillations or there cannot be oscillations, because these trajectories are, in principle, allowed to do all sorts of crazy things in three dimensions. Um, but it turns out that it, it still ends up being true here, that, uh, that when, this, when this internal fixed point is stable, you don't get oscillations. And when it's unstable, you do. Okay. But that, that sort of didn't have to be true from a mathematical statement, or mathematical kind of standpoint. All right. Now, uh, since this is, uh, well, this is now going to be a three by three matrix, so we're going to have to calculate those uh, those eigenvalues. Now, um, how many eigenvalues are there going to be? Three. Okay. Um, right. So th this thing I've kind of written in the form of uh, a matrix to help us out a little bit. Right. But in particular. We're going to get the same, the same thing that we had before, which is that the P1 tilde, so these are, these are deviations, again, from the fixed point. There's, right? And we get this matrix that's going to look like this. Minus 1, again, 0. It's the same x that we had before, conveniently still on the board. Right, so this is just uh, after we take these derivatives, and then we have p1 tilde, p2 tilde, and p3 tilde. Okay. Now what we need to know is for this uh, this Jacobian, what is going to be the uh, what are going to be the, the eigenvalues? If this for this thing to be stable, it requires what? What's, yeah, what's the requirement for stability of, this, of that fixed point at P0? OK, all right, so, right, okay, so for two dimensions, this trace and determinant condition actually, that works. It's important to say that that only works for two dimensions, actually, the, the, the rule about traces and determinants. Right? So, um, so, that's, um, so, so be careful. In, like, there, yeah, so what's the more general statement? Exactly. So in, in order for that fixed point to be stable, it requires that all the eigenvalues uh, have real parts less than 0. 
So uh, in order to determine the stability of the fixed point, we need to ask, you know, what are the eigenvalues of this matrix? And determine, to get the, uh, the eigenvalues, what we do is we calculate this characteristic equation, the, this thing that we learned about in, uh, in linear algebra and so forth. Right? What we do is we take the, uh, this, is some, this is the matrix A, we'll say this matrix A. Right? What we, uh, we want to do is we want to ask, all right, do you need any? All right, we can probably cover it. We need to ask whether the determinant of the matrix A minus some eigenvalue times the identity matrix. You know, we want this thing to be equal to 0. All right, so this is how uh, we determine uh, what the eigenvalues are. Right. Uh, and this is not as bad as it could be for general 3 by 3 matrices, because a lot of these things are 0. Right? So the, this thing is just, this is the determinant of the following matrix. Um, Right, so we have minus 1, minus lambda, 0. This thing x that's in principle bad, minus 1, minus lambda, 0. Get 0, x, minus 1, minus lambda. Okay. Now, to take the determinant, 3 by 3 matrix, remember, you can say, all right, well, this determinant is going to be equal to, we have this term. So this is a minus 1 plus a lambda okay, times the determinant of this matrix. All right, and then we just have, that's this, the product of these minus product of these. So this just gives us this thing again. So this is actually just minus 1 plus lambda cubed. All right, next term, this is 0. That's great. We don't need to worry about that. The next one, we get plus. We have an x determinant here. We get, again, x squared. So this is just an x cubed. Okay. We want this thing to be equal to 0. So we actually get a very simple requirement uh, for the eigenvalues, which is that uh, that 1 plus the eigenvalues cubed is equal to this thing x cubed. Now be careful, because remember, x is actually a negative number. All right, so watch out. Um, OK, so I think that the, the, the best way to get a sense of what this thing is is to, is to plot it. Of course, it's a little bit tempting here to just say, all right, well, can we just say that 1 plus lambda is equal to x? No. All right, so what's the matter with that? I mean, it's sort of true, maybe, possibly. Right, so the, the problem here is that um, we're supposed to be getting three different eigenvalues, or at least it's possible to get three different eigenvalues, right? And, um, and so this is really specifying the solution for 1 plus lambda on the complex plane. All right, so what the way to, okay, so the, the solution for 1 plus lambda, we can get by thinking about this is the, this is the real part of, of 1 plus lambda, and this is the uh, imaginary part of 1 plus lambda. And we know that. One solution is going to be out here at um, x. You know, so the, this is at, well, this distance here is the magnitude of x. Right? Now, the others, however, 
are going to be um, around, around the complex plane, similar distances where we get something that looks like this. Okay. So these are like 30, 60, 90 triangles. You know. So this is 30 degrees here. right? Because what you see is that for each of these three solutions, for 1 plus lambda, if you cube them, you end up with um, x cubed. Right? So this guy, you square it, cube, you end up back here. This one, again, if you cube it, you, know, you, go, you start out here, squared, and then cubed comes back out here. Same thing, and I, this goes around somehow. All right. So there are three solutions to this 1 plus lambda, and they're at these, kind of, these points here. Right. Now, of course, it's not 1 plus lambda that we actually wanted to know about. It was lambda. Right. But we can get, if we know what 1 plus lambda is, then we can get, we can get what lambda is. Right. What do we have to do? Right, we have to slide it to the left. Right? So this is, you know, this is the real axis. This is the imaginary axis. You know, 1. Right, so what, we have to move everything over 1. Okay? Now, remember the requirement for stability was that all of the eigenvalues would be, have, have real parts that were negative. That means that the requirement for stability at that fixed point is that all three of these fixed points are in the left half of the plane. Okay? So what you can see is that in this problem, the whole question of stability and whether we get oscillations boils down to the, how big this thing is. What's this distance? If this distance is more than 1, then when we subtract 1, we don't get, uh, we don't get it into the, you know, into the left part of the plane. If it's, OK, I can't remember what, which, which, which case I just gave. But yeah, so we need to, we need to know whether this thing is, um, is larger or smaller than 1. Okay. And, and that has to do with the magnitude of x. Right? So if the magnitude of x, well, do you guys remember your geometry for a 30, 60, 90 triangle? All right, so if the magnitude of x, and this is indeed the magnitude of x, okay, if this, this, this short edge on a 30, 60, 90 is half the long edge, right? Okay. So what we can say is that this thing, uh, this fixed point is stable. Right, stable fixed point. Is you know if and only if the magnitude of x is what? Less than two. Okay. Right, so that's nice. And you know we could if we want we could plug in with the, just to write ourselves. Okay, this is n alpha p naught n minus one. Right, so for, it's useful to, to, once you get to something like this, to try to just ask, okay, well, for various kind of values, you know, how does this play out? You know, what, what, is the, what does the requirement end up being, right? And, uh, and a useful limit is to think about what happens in the limit of very strong expression. So strong expression corresponds to what? Big alpha, yes, perfect. Uh, and it turns out, right? So you have to big alpha. 
is a little bit, OK, and remember, we have to figure out what, remember what P0 was? P0 was this P0 times 1 plus P0. All right, so the, the this is the requirement. And actually, if, if you kind of if you play with these equations just a little bit, what you'll find is that if alpha is much, if alpha is much larger than 1, then uh, this requirement is that n is less than 2, or less than around 2. Right, this is saying, on the flip side, right, if the fixed point is it's stable, if you don't have very strong uh, uh, cooperativity and repression, right, and that the flip side is that if you have strong cooperativity of repression, then you get um, then you can get oscillations because this fixed point becomes this interior fixed point becomes unstable. Okay? Similar, right? So this is also saying that that you know n greater than around two, it leads to oscillations, right? And this maybe makes sense, because when you have strong cooperativity in the repression there, what that's telling you is that it's a switch-like response. And in, in that regime, it maybe becomes more, uh, more like a simple Boolean kind of network where you can, if you just kind of write down the ones and zeros, you can convince yourself that this thing maybe principally, or in principle, could oscillate. Right. Now, if you, if you look at the, uh, the, the Elowitz uh, repressor paper, you'll see that he gives some expression for uh, for what this thing should be like, and it looks um, it looks va it looks vaguely similar, right? Uh, of course, there he's including the mRNAs uh, as well, right? But if you think that this was too pain this was painful to do in class, then including the mRNAs is more painful. Okay. Um, right. Are there any any questions about about this idea? Um, well, I think they did, they did simulations as well. And, and, you know, and so the nature of simulations is that you can convince yourself that there exist places that do oscillate or don't oscillate. Although you'll notice that they have a very kind of enigmatic uh, sentence in here, which is that it is possible that in addition to simple oscillations, this and more realistic models may exhibit other complex types of dynamic behavior. Right? Um, and this is just. You know, a way of saying, well, you know, I don't know, <laughs> maybe something, right? Um, because I mean, once you're talking about a six-dimensional system, you know, you never know if you've explored all of parameter space. You don't know if, I mean, even for fixed parameters, you don't know if you started at all the right locations. Uh, you can kind of develop some sense that, oh, this thing seems to oscillate or seems to not oscillate. And it does correspond to these conditions, but you, you don't, know whether, I mean, it, it could be that in some regions you get chaos or other things, right? Uh, yeah, so it, it's, you know, it's funny because I, I, you know, I've read this paper many times, but it was only last night when I was rereading it that I kind of thought about that sense, like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure either, you know, <laughs> I mean, what, you know, what the, this model could possibly do, right? Yes? That's right. Because 
All right, so the, the reason that the three x's are the same is because we've assumed that this is, uh, that th this really is the symmetric version of, uh, of the repressilator, right? That, uh, that all of the, because we're assuming that all of the alphas, all the n's, all the k's, everything's the same across all three of them, right? So given that symmetry, then you're always going to end, end up with a symmetric kind of version of this. Uh, so I think that even, uh, so if it, were, if it were asymmetric, and then you made the non-dimensional versions of things, I think you still won't end up getting the same x's, just because if it's asymmetric, then something has to be asymmetric, right? You know, uh, yeah. Yes? Yes, OK, we, uh, we can go ahead and, and, and kind of do this. I, I, yeah. um. All right, so for, um, for large alpha, this fixed point is going to be, um, you know, then, then p naught is going to be much larger than 1, right? So this is about p naught to the n plus 1. Right, we can neglect the one for large alpha, right? And then, and then what we can say is that over here, well, first, for example, if we multiply both sides by, you know, put up a p naught squared, p naught squared, so multiply by one, then okay, this down here is definitely alpha squared, right? And then up here, what we have is p naught to the n plus one, which we decided was around alpha for strong alpha, right? So that, that, that gives us alpha times alpha divided by alpha squared. So that all, this actually all goes away for, for uh, large alpha. So then you, you're just left with n less than 2. Did that? Sorry, where did that top right equation come from? OK, so this equation here is just, this is the solution for where that fixed point is. There, so in this space of uh, the p naughts, if you just set the equations for p1, p2, p3, if you set that equal to 0, this is, this is the, um, the expression always you know, for large alpha, small alpha. So this is indeed the location of, um, of that fixed point. And it's just that as alpha is large, then we get that uh, p naught to the n plus 1 is approximately equal to alpha. And this is for alpha much greater than 1. Right? And in that case, all of these things just go away, and you're just left with n less than 2. Okay. So for example, and, and, um, as alpha goes down in magnitude, then you end up getting a require in that oscillations require a larger n. Okay. So for example, well, we might as well, we'll give you practice on this. All right, so I think I, I wrote another. If I can find, I think it's for alpha. You can ask for alpha equal to 2. You know, what n required for oscillations? I'll let you start playing with that, and I will make sure that I've given you the right alpha to use. So in this case, what we're asking is, 
if instead of having really strong maximal expression, if instead expression is just not quite as strong, then what we'll find is that you actually need to have a more cooperative repression in order to get oscillations. Right? And that's just because if alpha is equal to 2, then we can kind of figure out what p naught is equal to. 1. Right. Great. So if you know, so the fixed point is at 1. Right? And this is, that's great, because this, this we can then figure out. right? So this is 1 plus 1 squared. That's a 4. 1, um, 2. Right. And so this tells us that, in this case, we need to have very, uh, very cooperative repression. We have to have an n greater than around 4 in order to get oscillations uh, in, in, in this protein-only model. Yes? It's kind of strange that even for really big alpha, you still need greater than. Um... Yeah, right, right. So this is an interesting question. That you might think that for, uh, for very, lo very large expression that you wouldn't need to have cooperative repression at all, right? Uh, and I can't say that I have any wonderful intuition about this. Um, yeah, because it somehow has to do with just the slopes of those curves around that fixed point, and then and it's in three dimensions. And, um, right. But I think that this highlights that a priori, you know, if you go and you want to say, oh, I want to construct this repressilator, you know, it's maybe not even obvious that it, you want it to be more or less. I mean, you might not even think about this idea of cooperative repression. right? You might just think, oh, well, I mean, you might be tempted to think that any chain of three proteins repressing each other that it just kind of has to oscillate, right? I mean, there's a little bit of a sense. And, and that's, that's the logic that you get at from a kind of a, uh, you know, if you just do zeros and ones, right? If you say, oh, here's x, here's y, here's z, right? They're, and they're repressing each other, right? You say, oh, OK, well, if, you know, if I start out at, you know, say, 0, 1, 0, you say, OK, that's all fine, right? But OK, so this is repressing. And OK, but this guy wasn't repressing this one, so now we get a 1, 1, 0, maybe. You know, then you say, oh, OK, well, now this guy starts repressing this one. So now it gives us a 1, 0, 0. And what you see is that over these two steps, the kind of on protein kind of has shifted. And indeed, that's going to continue going all the way around, right? So just from this kind of like, you know, you know, Boolean logic kind of perspective, you might think that any three proteins mutually repressing each other just has to oscillate, right? And it's only by looking at things a little bit more carefully that you say, oh, well, we have to actually worry about uh, worry about this that that you really have to think about oh you want to have you know you want to choose some uh, some transcription factors that are say multimerizing and cooperatively repressing the next protein uh, just to have some reasonable shot at at having this thing uh, really actually oscillate right yeah so in this we, we might still be able I mean oscillations like this might still be there but just not like maybe oscillations around some stable fixed point or something. Like, is it just a non minute cycle oscillation? Uh, Do you think that in a, in a like, equals one long, there's, there's probably still be some kind of oscillation somewhere, just not this beautiful minute cycle kind? Yeah, I, my, my understanding is that in, for example, this three, this protein only model, the repressor, that if you, uh, if you do not have cooperative repression, then it really is just, uh, it just goes to that stable fixed point. Right. Of course, you have to worry about maybe no, these noise-induced oscillation kind of ideas. But, um, but in, at least within the realm of, of the deterministic differential equations, then, um, it, it, you know, then the system just goes to that internal fixed point that's specified by this. Yeah, question. Can we think like that the, uh, 
Uh, that's an interesting question, whether um, the cooperativity maybe is introducing a delay. right? Um, and that's because, oh, after the proteins are made, maybe it takes some extra time to, to dimerize and so forth. All right, so that statement may be true, but it's not relevant. Okay? No, and I think, but I think this is very important. right? This model has certainly not taken that into account. Right? So the, the mechanism that's here is not what you're saying. And it, but it may be true that for any experimental system, such dimerization, such delay from the dimerization is, is relevant and helps you get oscillations. Right? But at least within the realm of this model, we have very much not included any sort of delay associated with dimerization or anything. Right? So that is very much not the explanation for why we, you know, why dimerization leads to oscillations here. Right? And I think uh, this is a, a wider point that it's, it's very important always to keep track of which effects you've included in any given analysis of which ones are not. And I, it, and I see, it, and it's very, very common to, for, there are many things that are true, but they may not actually be relevant for the discussion at hand. You know? and, I, and I think it's, it's in those situations that it's easy to get kind of mixed up. Because, um, because the, you know, it still is true, right? I mean, even, even, if it's not, even if it doesn't, even if it's not what's driving the effect that is being, you know, in this case, analyzed, right? All right, I think we're out of time, so we should quit. On, uh, on Tuesday, we'll start by wrapping up the oscillation discussion by d talking about other oscillator designs that allow for um, robustness and tunability. Okay.